Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 34, League Champions. In the last chapter, we left the Greeks in a terrible state. Xerxes, king of the Persians, had taken possession of Athens after the Greeks had been defeated at Thermopylae. The Ionian Greeks had fled from their city and abandoned it. It seemed like the Persians were about to overrun the whole of Greece and then, just maybe, destroy the Greek civilization. But there was one Athenian who was not yet defeated. Themistocles and his fleet had withdrawn to the island of Salamis after the indecisive battle at Artemisium. Not only that, the women and children who had fled from Athens had been carried to safety on Salamis and the men were ready to fight for Themistocles. Many of the Greeks, though, thought the position was hopeless. Only Themistocles really believed, and he realised they had to gamble everything on one battle. The Spartans wanted to go back to the Peloponnese and try and make a last stand there, but Themistocles refused. As with many of the great battles of the ancient world, a trick was involved. Themistocles sent a message to Xerxes, pretending that he had changed sides. He wrote the Greeks were trying to slip away from Salamis under the cover of darkness. The Persians reacted immediately. They sailed close to Salamis. Themistocles, clever old Themistocles, had another trick up his sleeve. He needed to make the Persians sail through a narrow channel so they couldn't get many ships through in one go. Then, the fact that the Greeks had far fewer ships wouldn't matter so much, as the Persians wouldn't be able to attack with very many of theirs. He ordered a few ships to sail away, as if in panic, towards the Peloponnese. The Persians fell for it again. They thought the Greeks had become disunited. They sailed into the narrows. The oarsmen were tired, and it was windy and rough. The rough seas forced some of the Persian ships to turn, slightly exposing their sides. The Greeks, not nearly as tired, rode with all their strength towards the Persians. Swift and heavy, the Greek triremes smashed into the sides of the Persian ships. With a resounding crunch, the triremes split the lighter Persian vessels. There was a deafening sound of shattered hull and snapped oars, as one by one, Xerxes' ships sank. Seeing what had happened, some of the Persian commanders ordered their crews to flee. Some ran aground, and some rode away. The Greek triremes formed a wedge shape and cut the Persian fleet in two. Many more of the Persian ships slipped below the water and thousands of Persians were killed. By the end of the day, some 300 Persian ships had been lost. The Greeks lost only 40. The Persian fleet limped away. Themistocles had won. The Persians regrouped. Under their general Mardonius, they abandoned Attica and retired to Boeotia for the winter. The Athenians reclaimed their burnt city. In the spring of 479 BC, though, the Persians were back. They recaptured Athens, and the Greeks retreated across the Isthmus of Corinth into the Peloponnese. They built fortifications along the six-mile-wide Isthmus and held a war council. They had won at the Battle of Salamis and severely weakened the Persian fleet. Perhaps they could do the same on land. The allied Greek city-states began to put together a very large army. When the army was complete, it was massive. There were 10,000 Spartan hoplites and 8,000 Athenians. They were joined by 5,000 from Corinth, 3,000 from Megara, and more than 12,000 from the other allied polys. Altogether, the Greeks mustered 38,000 hoplites. Added to this were loads of Spartan helots, and a total of about the same number from the other cities. There were, therefore, over 70,000 Greek troops in all. 
the Greek army marched out of the Peloponnese towards Athens. Mardonius heard about the advancing Greek army, but he wasn't worried. He had about 120,000 battle-hardened soldiers under his command, and was pretty confident they could beat these puny Greeks. The Persian Empire was the most powerful in the known world, and except for that little setback at Marathon, didn't really know what it was like to lose a land battle. Mardonius retreated into Boeotia and set up fortifications along the river Asopus near the town of Plataea. The Greeks marched in and set up camp in the foothills of Mount Kitharion, separated from the Persians by a range of small hills. However, both sides refused to attack as each side received bad omens. The army stayed camped, twiddling their thumbs for eight days. Mardonius, bored and frustrated, sent his cavalry to attack the mountain passes. This raid resulted in the capture of a band of supplies intended for the Greeks. Two days later, Mardonius launched a cavalry raid on the Greek lines, which succeeded in blocking the only source of water for the Greek army. With no food or water, the Greeks retreated to a position in front of Plataea, from where they could guard the passes and have access to fresh water. But it all went wrong. The Allied forces in the centre missed their appointed position and ended up scattered in front of Plataea itself. The Spartan Pausanias, who was in charge of the whole Greek army, tried to get everyone back together, but failed. Mardonius took this shambles of a retreat to mean that the Greeks were about to flee. He rubbed his hands with glee and sent his best troops in to attack. The cavalry joined in, attacking the Spartans, and then the Persian archers showered the Greeks with arrows. Pausanias, though, sized up the situation and made a decision. At exactly the right moment, he gave the order for the Spartans to advance. They raced into battle. Their long spears did their work, and Persian after Persian fell dead. The Persians countered by trying to break the spears, but the hoplites just drew their swords instead. More Persians fell. Mardonius, on his horse in the middle of the battle, tried his best to spur his army on. A Spartan hoplite, called Arimnestus, saw him on his horse. The quick-thinking Greek picked up a large rock. He aimed carefully, knowing he'd never throw a more important rock in his life. He aimed, he threw. The rock sailed through the air and hit Mardonius squarely on the head. He fell, dead from his horse. The Persian soldiers saw their commander die and fled. They were massacred. Of the 120,000 Persians who entered the battle, only about 40,000 survives. The Greeks lost fewer than 10,000. The Battle of Plataea was a massive victory for the Greeks. On the same day, their fleet again beat the Persians. The forces of Xerxes had been decimated, and the survivors fled back to Asia. It was the first time the Persians had lost a war, and they never seriously tried to take the Greeks on again. Xerxes concentrated on his eastern empire, which was still absolutely huge and very powerful. He also built many magnificent buildings in his capital, and continued to rule well. He was murdered in 465 BC, but his son, Artaxerxes, avenged the murder and then became king himself. Neither of the heroic Greek leaders lived long and happy lives after the defeat of the Persians. The Spartan hero of Plataea, Pausanias, continued to lead the military and captured the city of Byzantium. However, he released a number of Persian prisoners and let them go back to Persia. When he was found out, he claimed they had escaped. Then he took to wearing the clothes of a Persian aristocrat and adopting Persian customs. Of course, he was accused of being in league with the Persians. He returned to Sparta 
but the accusation never really went away, and in 471 BC it came up again. The ephors were about to arrest Pausanias, but he fled to the temple of Athena. The ephors simply blockaded him in and refused him any food. Pausanias died of starvation. The Athenian hero of Salamis, Themistocles, fared no better. It should have been great for him. He had won the battle and, using the navy, made Athens as powerful as Sparta. He had a new defensive wall built at Athens. We will find out in the next chapter. Tension rose between Athens and Sparta as the Spartans became nervous about the new military power in Athens. Some of the leaders in Athens wanted to be friendlier with Sparta and argued with Themistocles, who, in 470 BC, was ostracised. Themistocles spent his ostracism in Argos. The Spartans accused him of being in league with the Persians, which was a bit unlikely since he'd smashed their navy at least twice. He was hounded out of the Peloponnese and fled to the only place he could. He fled to Persia. Artaxerxes received him kindly. He had a lot of respect for great military leaders. He gave Themistocles the income from three of the Ionian cities of Asia Minor, which the Persians still controlled. Later, though, he demanded that Themistocles help him in a war against Athens. This was too much for Themistocles. The great hero of Salamis killed himself rather than help fight against his Athenian brothers. It was a sad end for a great man. In 479 BC, the Athenians felt awesome. They had defeated the Persians and they had the best navy in Greece. The Spartans were still the best military power on land, but they couldn't match the Athenians at sea. The Athenians decided they could be even more powerful. They saw Sparta at the head of the Peloponnesian League and decided they needed a league of their own. The Persians were still a bit of a threat, so the Athenians got together a number of city-states not already allied with Sparta and persuaded them to come together in an alliance. The alliance they formed had an official meeting place on the sacred island of Delos and it became known as the Delian League. Despite its name, it was dominated by Athens and was really an Athenian League. The Delian League was large. It had 150 members. Sparta, of course, refused to join and kept the Peloponnesian League together. All of the members of the League contributed ships, troops or money to it. The army and navy were built up so the Persians would never want to attack. They could see the strength of the Greek forces and would be put off invading again. At the start of the League, every state had an equal say and an equal vote, but Athens soon became the dominant partner. In the early days of the League, the rivalry with Sparta was kept in the background. The military leader, Cimon, tried to keep sensible relations with the Peloponnesian League. The Persians were still a potential threat, and Cimon was keen on saving any soldiers in case the Persian War kicked off again. And anyway, they still had work to do. Throughout the 470s BC, the Delian League campaigned in Thrace and the Aegean to remove the remaining Persian garrisons from the region. In the early part of the next decade, Cimon began campaigning in Asia Minor, seeking to strengthen the Greek position there. At the Battle of Eurymedon, the Delian League fleet achieved a stunning double victory, destroying a Persian fleet and then landing the ship's marines to attack and smash the Persian army. After this battle, the Persians stopped trying to fight, just remaining defensive. Some of the members of the Delian League started to get a bit disgruntled with Athens dominating it. They were supposed to be equal, so why were the Athenians making all the decisions? First Naxos, and then Thassos, declared that they were no longer members. They found out very quickly that they were, in fact, very much still members, whether they liked it or not. 
both had their walls destroyed and the gold mines of Thassos were turned over to Athens. No city-state was allowed to leave the Delian League. In Athens itself, Cimon was still the dominant figure. He continued to have military victories and was immensely popular. In 463 BC, though, things started to go a bit bad for him. He was accused of accepting bribes from Alexander I of Macedon and was put on trial. The chief prosecutor of the trial was a man called Pericles. Pericles had been a politician in Athens for a while and was seen as a rival of Cimon. Whereas Cimon wanted to keep relations with Sparta friendly and concentrate on the threat of the Persians, Pericles thought the Persian threat was over. He was not nearly so keen on staying chums with the Spartans. Cimon was found not guilty. In 462, Sparta was having a terrible time. It was in the middle of a huge helot rebellion. Cimon persuaded the Athenians to send some hoplites to help the Spartans, and he arrived with 4,000 men. The Spartans, though, were worried the Athenians would change sides, and sent Cimon and his forces away. When Cimon arrived back in Athens, he was no longer popular. The Athenians thought that Cimon was too pro-Sparta and were very insulted by the way the Spartans had treated his forces. In 461 BC, Cimon was ostracised. Pericles became the leading man in Athens. Athens was still a democracy, the Archons were still elected every year, but Pericles had a lot of influence. From 460 BC, he was elected Strategos, the leader of the military, for 29 consecutive years. Pericles made it easier for poorer people to become archons, but he changed the policies of Cleisthenes to skilled people abroad. The only people allowed to be Athenian citizens were those whose parents were also both Athenian citizens. Pericles made one momentous decision about the Delian League. He decided it was too dangerous for the treasury, containing all of the League's money, to be located out on the island of Delos. It would be much safer, he said, if it was in Athens. Then, without really bothering to get anybody else's agreement, he moved the cash to Athens. This was the final straw. The Delian League was not really a league of independent states anymore. It was an empire controlled by one state. It was an Athenian empire. Athens had won the league. In 459 BC, tension flared up between Athens and Sparta. Megara and Corinth, both close neighbours and allies of Sparta, fought a short war against each other. Athens allied with Megara, much to the annoyance of the Spartans. After a few years of minor skirmishes, the forces of Sparta and Athens met at the Battle of Tanagra. The Spartans, being the most powerful military power in Greece, won the battle, but didn't feel strong enough to march into Attica, so they retreated across the Isthmus of Corinth and agreed a truce. The Athenians took advantage. They conquered all of Boeotia except Thebes and raided the Peloponnesian coast, in 454 BC, though, the Athenians lost a war with the Persians in Egypt. They decided to concentrate on their leadership of the Delian League and took their opportunity to make peace with Sparta. When Cimon re returned from his ostracism in 451 BC, he negotiated another truce with Sparta. The Athenians breathed a little more easily. In 450, Cimon, now firmly back in the good books in Athens, was sent to Cyprus to free it from Persian control. He died of disease during the battle, but the Persians had finally had enough of fighting. They requested peace, and there were no further major hostilities between any of the Greek states and the Persians. 
In about 446 BC, after a few more small wars, a new truce was agreed with Sparta. Megara was given back and a few other states were allowed to become independent. The truce was called the Thirty-Year Peace. Pericles was delighted. He was at peace with his major foreign enemy, Persia, and his major Greek enemy, Sparta. Now he could concentrate on making things great at home. Pericles built and built and built. He used the money from the treasury of the Delian League to make Athens magnificent. Nearly 500 years later, the Roman Emperor Augustus would say that he had found Rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble. The same could be said of Pericles, and the time from 454 to his death in 429 is known as the Golden Age of Athens. Everything was marvellous. Athens controlled Attica, many of the islands off the coast of Attica, southern Thrace, and most of Ionia and Asia Minor. It was wealthy and powerful, and a seat of great learning. Clever people such as philosophers, writers and mathematicians worked in Athens, creating and discovering wondrous things. In 432 BC, the thirty-year truce with Sparta had been in operation for fourteen years. Disagreements between the two sides had flared up a few times over a number of different things. The truce had held, though, and no real fighting had happened. During 432, this changed, and things spiralled out of control. Although neither side knew it, 432 was to be the last year of the thirty-year peace. War was inevitable. Athens and Sparta would only actually be at peace for half of that time. Next week, we shall watch as Athens and Sparta battle it out. Please contact me with any feedback by email at mythandhistory at gmail.com. You can always friend me on Facebook at Paul Vincent Myth and History, and if you do get a chance to leave me a favourable review on iTunes, I'd be very grateful. So, until next week... Have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.